Hello, this is Tom Pasello, the ROI guy, and welcome to the Evolvers podcast, sponsored by sales enablement platform provider, Mediafly. Our mission is to provide you with the independent insights, community advice, and tools to guide your sales, content, and value enablement journeys and fuel your professional evolution. My guest today is Steve Kaplan. He is the principal of Cloud Consultancy Access Flow, and he is also a managing partner in HMG Ventures, which is a sister company to HMG Strategy, and that is the largest IT uh, network leader in the world. Um, Steve is also the author of the book, The ROI Story, a guide for IT leaders. And most importantly, Steve is better known as the ROI dude. Uh, indeed, folks, the ROI guy and the ROI dude are all in one place. Evolvers, please welcome Steve Kaplan. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. So the ROI dude, um, I really want to know, how did you get into ROI? And definitely, how did you become come to be known as the ROI dude? Well, you know, I got my uh, undergraduate and uh, MBA degrees, and uh, so of course was very familiar with the concept of ROI, uh, but started a computer reseller business, and eventually we morphed into uh, uh, networking, Novell Networking, and then the Citrix uh, Winframe. And, and back in those days, ROI and, and TCO were not commonly used uh, by manufacturers to uh, talk about the value of their products. Uh, but when Citrix Windframe came out, you, you know, we quickly realized, you know, this is pretty amazing stuff. It eliminates the need to have servers and remote offices. It even eliminates the need to upgrade PCs. And so I started doing ROI analysis. And, and the company I, I founded and ran was tucked away in a little corner in the, the North Bay. You know, it wasn't Orlando or Dallas or somewhere. So it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And uh and, and we did really well with those uh, ROI analyses. In fact, in 1999, Mark Templeton, the CEO of Citrix, was coming out to San Francisco, and he asked to have breakfast with me. And uh, we came to breakfast, and he said, uh, so tell me, how are you selling so much Citrix? <laughs> I said, we, we use ROI. Uh, and I actually uh, helped Citrix develop their first tool and then worked with Gartner on a, a subsequent tool. <laughs> and uh, after I sold that business, uh, I started, uh, I came across VMware a few years later and uh, said, well, this is another extraordinary value proposition. So from the beginning, we started a company, my, my partner, Gary Lamb and I uh, just focused around the value of enterprise virtualization with VMware. Again, something that wasn't done a lot in those days. And, and we did financial analyses for people, which was just really easy to do uh, because it was so clear the value. And uh, we got some international awards. In fact, the Citrix before I sold, we were named the first Citrix Partner of the Year. So the same thing happened at the second business, and uh, we ended up selling that to a publicly traded company and uh, worked there for a while, and uh, eventually uh, left and joined Nutanix. Uh, and and during the interim space, I discovered Twitter, and so a natural handle was uh, ROI did. But just kind of a funny story, uh, my book, The ROI Story, A Guide for IT Leaders, as you mentioned, uh, I um, came up with a comic character uh, called ROI Dude, uh, uh, even geekier alter ego for me. And he gives out helpful tips throughout the, the book. And a couple of years ago, Nutanix's customer-facing conference in Orlando 
my book had just come out. I had a pre-release copy that I was carrying around with me in, uh, in my backpack. And uh, this was the, also, though I live up in Lake Tahoe, and it was just a couple of days after I had uh, injured my shoulder snowboarding. And so I was in a sling and I was in some pain and my hotel room uh, where I left my wallet, it was quite a walk to the convention center. This is the Anaheim Convention Center. Uh, and um, upon arriving, they had the sign, must have valid ID. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, you know, no big deal. And I walked up to one of the registration desks and I said, uh, you know, I'm, I've been an employee in Utah in those days for over six years. I'm a speaker at this event. Uh, well, that didn't work. Uh, so then I, I started getting a little concerned. So uh, I asked to speak to a supervisor and uh, I, I, have, I had my credit card with me and I held up and said, uh, you, know, you know, I have a credit card. Just, I'm sorry, you must have a government issued photo ID. So, uh, you know, dreading the long walk back to my hotel in my sling, in my pain, I had one idea, last idea and I reached my backpack. I pulled out that new copy of my book. I flipped open to a picture of ROI, dude. I said, look, that's me. And uh, they let me in. <laughs> It's good to have your book around with you as your ID, although it's a little bit easier to carry the real ID than the, than the book. But yeah, I've got mine up on my shelf and a copy of mine is never too far away from me as well, but I have not used it as ID. So um, you mentioned, you know, the partner companies that you had and uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, a lot of partner organizations um, they have a hard time getting meetings. They have a hard time sometimes justifying in the sale. How important was ROI to you in building those partner businesses that you had? Um, you know, the, the first one, once we got into Citrix and once specifically Citrix Windframe came out, uh, it was pivotal to it. Uh, really only two of us, uh, one of my head sales guys and I that did the actual ROI analyses, but it was pivotal to making the sales. And in fact, um, we sold the, we, we did the first Citrix deployment, it was called Thin Client in those days, completely Thin Client for a Fortune 1000 company. And that completely hinged around the ROI analysis, would never happen without it. Uh, and in um, the, the second company, we started uh, around the VMware consulting again from the very beginning, we used ROI analysis to drive the sales. In fact, had a couple of times come up during the next three years before we sold it, where organizations were skeptical of the results that we showed them and uh, were kind of resistant. And I told them, uh, you know what? <clears throat> we'll go ahead and put in for free. We'll give you all the software and the services and the hardware, uh, set everything up. Uh, you just agree to give us half of the documented savings over the next three years. And uh, uh, neither did that, but they did. Uh, go with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it showed that you were that confident in the outcomes. And I did work on both of those models for Citrix eventually came around to build a thin client model. We did one for them. So I got to work on that and VMware, certainly. Uh, we're still, uh, VMware is still a good client of ours, but I worked on their initial kind of virtualization models and tooling uh, as well. So that was uh, back in the days of Alinean, but uh, two fun projects. I do think that if you're a partner organization, uh, a, a traditional reseller, or even just a partner, having a business case and using that as your go-to-market, as your kind of differentiator is key. So I wanted to jump into that a little bit with you there, Steve, because I do think it's important. And we work with a lot of organizations that are trying to build out their partner groups. And I think that making sure your partners can 
communicate and quantify the value and the unique value they add to the solution is as important as arming your direct sales force with the same capabilities. So um, at Nutanix, you built out what you call the customer success finance group. Um, tell us about the group. It has a unique name. I haven't seen a name like that before on a value program. Um, tell us about the program and some of the success that you had. Yeah, well, um, you know, when I actually was recruited to Nutanix to start the channel partner program uh, because of my background. In fact, for the first couple of years, for a few months until I started hiring like crazy, I was the channel partner program. Mm -hmm. And uh, But it didn't take too long for former clients of mine to see my job change on LinkedIn and say, you know, what, what is a Nutanix? And uh, <laughs> so uh, even though I was running channels, I kind of get, got the side gig do going of doing TCOs and ROIs for clients and uh, uh, showing them the value of Nutanix. And in fact, uh, I brought some of the biggest early clients over to Nutanix. I, I, my boss who ended up becoming president of the company, I sent him an email once after a couple, two or three years and said, you know, if I was in sales, I, I'd be the career third highest salesperson. <laughs> But um, eventually I went to him and I said, you know, as, as we grew and grew and grew, and I said, probably time to bring in somebody who scaled this before at a global level, and I'll go back to doing pure TCO and ROI. So, so that's what I did and uh, went well. And then I ended up hiring people and then ended up growing to be a, a global um, organization. And, and we were, you know, we had a lot of the challenges that everybody who, does value consulting faces, but we were pretty successful. We had a over six years an 89% uh, average close rate, uh, which is uh, you know very high. Yeah. And um, uh, and and uh, yeah, I, you know I when I left Nutanix uh, in June, I wrote a, a short LinkedIn post about it, and and CRN also graciously uh, graciously wrote an article about my leaving. And I, so I reshared that. And between both shares and articles, I got hundreds of comments. And I, I was just so grateful and, and uh, appreciative to see how many people said, well, you, you know, you really made a difference for us or made a difference for me. And, um, you, you know, honestly, in my long IT career, one of my most gratifying moments, I would say, um, my most appreciative moments and memorable moments. And uh, I think it just attests to the uh, importance and the impact of value selling. Mm -hmm. I love too how you named it customer success um, before customer success really was the movement that it is today and that you related it to you know, customer success finance. Um, so focusing on not just a pre-sale ROI, but you know, making sure that you're driving customer success and that the financial outcomes were there. Was that purposeful in how you named it? You didn't call it a value consultancy or a business value group or something like that. You really focused on the success piece? No, we actually were originally called the client strategy group and we're under sales. But when Nutanix started its customer success division, uh, we moved under customer success. So right. that's why we decided to, to go to finance. But we, you know, like you just kind of uh, implied, it goes way beyond the initial sale. And, and we had an initiative that we called Project Superhero. And the idea was we would go back to customers who 
Um, we're running Nutanix technology for 18 months, three years, five years, and we would do a, a, look, a look back analysis, uh, quantifying, you know, how much have you actually saved in hardware, in software, uh, in uh, OPEX? How's it impacted your IT staff lives now that they no longer have to work weekends and nights doing upgrades? How's it impacted your, your churn? And uh, those analyses were uh, very successful and very appreciated by the customers uh, because it, uh, it, it, as we all know, we always have to go back in IT. If you get a change uh, in senior management or, or upper management, a lot of times you have to go, they say, why, why are we running this stuff? Why are we paying this money for this? And so it's always good to be able to go back and uh, show the value of it uh, against the baseline and that's good for individuals too, whether that's a, a solutions provider or um, somebody working in IT. I think it's important to their own career and justifying what they've done for the company and quantifying it. And, and it goes beyond just the direct cost savings. This also goes into what is the value you've driven for the organization in terms of being able to drive increased revenues or customer satisfaction or other you know, type, same type of similar metrics. I agree. What was the biggest challenge that you faced at Nutanix building, kind of creating, building, launching, growing the program? You know, I would say it's the same type of challenge that I faced at INX, which was the company that purchased my, my second VMware uh, business. And, you know, that is that it's hard a lot of times to get salespeople on board with value selling, financial selling. And I think that sometimes because uh, they're uncomfortable with it, uncomfortable with the language uh, and how to do it, um, they may have fears that it slows down the sales cycle. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they may have a lack of trust in the analysis. You know, every, unlike when I started out doing ROI today, every manufacturer has, uh, you know, an ROI tool and so on. And uh, so I, I think that, you know, these factors combined make, a lot of salespeople were reluctant. And that was the biggest challenge to overcome uh, at INX and the biggest challenge at Nutanix. And the way that I would um, try and mitigate that was through internal uh, publicity, you know, publicizing success stories, internal selling, I guess was the word you mm -hmm. you'd say, uh, get uh, publicity around it uh, and, and success stories and get salespeople to speak up and, and about their successes and, you know, flag posts and so on and, and continue to drive enthusiasm and continue to push. Yeah. And I think that friction because sales turns over uh, because there's always some hot new tool or hot new initiative or hot new campaign, it has to be constant, right? Um, we've seen companies that we work with where they in, initiate a great launch and they'll support it for a little while, but then they'll get busy supporting analyses and fail to do some of that ongoing promotion. And sure enough, the program tails off. It really needs that constant uh, stoking of the ROI fire and ROI flames. Yeah, I agree completely. And, and I think what also helps tremendously, you know, if you see it come from the top, the chief mm -hmm. revenue officer or the, or the CEO, and you see some organizations out there now that are, uh, I think are doing a great job in this. Uh, Oracle is a big one. Really all the major cloud providers, uh, NetApp, and, um, 
I, I really like seeing that push come down from high. Yeah, I, we've got even one customer, Coupa, who's their CEO wrote a book, Value as a Service, to describe the company. Um, you can't get you know much more pointed and higher than that. And so that helps a lot. It helps the entire program because you know the entire organization is oriented around value. And I do see that when you're trying to get the adoption, if sales is very focused on the transaction still, if they're focused a lot on product and product features and product training, it is hard to get the adoption where you need it to be because you're almost fighting that old school mentality um, and value then gets perceived as something that slows down the transaction cycle, right? So it's funny that you ran into that and, uh, and we're able to overcome it with some of these techniques. Yeah, I think that um, you see that. I would guess without working for a lot of organizations that that's still a very common thing. And uh, the reason I called my book the ROI story is that an, an analysis, the financial analysis provides the opportunity for more than just quantifying a benefit. And the, the analogy I like to give is a producer putting on a show. You know, she has to find the uh, right script and the director and, and, and the actors and uh, the lighting and the screen and the, uh, the scene building and, you know, hundreds of variables. But at the end of the day, uh, the goal is to have this audience standing up, giving a standing ovation. Well, in financial analysis, if you're you know, coming at it from a solution provider perspective, the, the goal is to have the customer standing up, handing you a purchase order. Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't mean that it's going to be biased or anything. It means that it's going to be comprehensive and taking the opportunity to interact with the customer, not just as a salesperson asking for a PO, but instead as a consultant at telling, saying, tell me what your challenges are, what does your environment look like, what are your business objectives, and how can IT help meet those objectives? And then using the analysis as a framework to come up with that uh, approach and answer. Totally agree. And um, to that end, I called my solution value story because even though I'm the ROI guy and you're the ROI dude, both of us have figured out along the way that it's the story that matters, right? It's yeah. not the numbers. The numbers are there to support the story. Yet we see so many companies developing still, uh, although there's certainly some that have made the transition really, really well. There are some that, you know, they create this very complex spreadsheet and it's so easy for a value consultant, much less a seller or a partner to get totally lost in the numbers. Yeah. And what doesn't come across is why you even care about that downtime calculation or why you care about that IT productivity or cost avoidance calculation. And, and what, what's the challenge that's being solved? What is it costing them today to do nothing? What's the opportunity for improvement, the solution and how the solution actually delivers savings or value and then where's the evidence to kind of back it up and that's close in my methodology it spells close but it, it gets lost if you don't concentrate on the story as much if not more so than the numbers so we always like to work with um, customers on the story first and then the numbers and how to quantify that differentiating value second so that the story shines through and even before the story it's focusing on who are the roles that are involved in the decision-making and 
gosh, we know how many more roles are involved in every decision now too. Yeah, we exactly feel the same way. But I'll, I'll give a kind of a, I don't know if you call it a corollary or a counterpoint, but that's kind of the whole cloud space. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Martin Cassando of, of Anderson Horowitz made big news a few months ago when he wrote this article about, you know, public cloud's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're a software company, it can amount to billions of dollars of market cap lost opportunities you're paying in public cloud. And he talked about repatriation and so on. It was a good article, but I thought it was, uh, you know, kind of very limited in the sense that it was an all or nothing type approach. You're all public cloud or you're all on-prem when the reality is that most organizations is hybrid. Yeah. But, you know, there's so much pressure out there for organizations to lift and shift everything to public cloud. And people go, oh, you know, it's only costing pennies a minute. So they say, of course, we're going to save money. <laughs> but they, they don't do the analysis. And, you know, public cloud is wonderful and it's great. It's got scalability capabilities and so on that are extremely valuable that then in some cases can't be replicated on-prem but the important thing is to do the analysis and figure out what's right for your organization uh, and maybe the story is that yeah the new said we want to go to cloud we want to be in cloud. okay great but but at least know what's that costing me yeah yeah <laughs> instead of just yeah. blindly going into it yeah. So the story is important, but like you said, the numbers are there and they do need to make sense as well as part of it all. And I, I love your thought of, you know, you're almost like an orchestrator as a seller where you've got to weave this compelling story and the numbers are a part of it. You got to have kind of the hero that you're uh, lifting up, which is your customer. You know, there's got to be a villain somewhere in it, maybe changing market conditions or something else. And then there's got to be this bigger purpose, right? Because what are we here for at the end of the day? And um, so I think the art of storytelling is as important to the ROI dude and the ROI guy's successes as anything. And hopefully as a seller or a consultant, you're feeling the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so the other side of really this pressure to go to public cloud is the the villain we'll call call him or her uh, from a status quo standpoint yeah, someone yeah. whose you know career has been vested around a particular technology and maybe uh, he's earned certifications around that that value that he values and that's what he's comfortable with or maybe someone's going to retire in a few years and she doesn't want to have to learn this new disruptive technology and bring it in so that that's the other side of it someone who's kind of resistant to financial analysis because of these personal agenda meetings, or maybe they even have all the best intentions of the world for the organization. I certainly think most IT professionals are like this, mm -hmm. but they don't really understand the new technology enough at a nuanced financial level to do a, a, an analysis mm -hmm. that, that is gonna make sense for the organization. So you have this whole type of legacy status quo environment that also is very important to do an analysis and to have the technical acumen to, to really look at the, the nuances of the technology so that the organization can make the best decision. Maybe that's to stay with the status quo, but at least again, uh, should know what that is uh, from a cost standpoint. Totally agree. So, you know, we've got the pandemic um, and all of the changes that have occurred since that it has helped to accelerate. Um, do you think financial justification is as important now to IT solution providers post-pandemic? Like, what are you seeing in terms of changes? Uh, we're definitely seeing that 
you know, there are very few purchases, including renewals, certainly expansions, and if it's new, definitely, that don't get approved unless you've got a solid story that ties to a top-level business objective and a solid business case that goes with it. Yeah, I, I agree. The pandemic certainly has caused, I think, even more accelerated cost consciousness among organizations. But even more importantly, this imperative for digital transformation or business transformation or what you want to call it or die. And so at that point, yeah, the IT solution has to be chosen within the context of how it's going to facilitate the business objectives. And, uh, but again, uh, like you, I feel that uh, a really good financial analysis is very important underlying that. Yeah, and you're right. The demand for transformation, tr transformation services, solutions, if you're able to tie to a transformation project, um, the opportunities are there. So more opportunities than ever, but we're also seeing that it needs to be justified because executives and finance are way more involved and the business is more involved. And in fact, the business is probably driving a lot of the change, right? So it's not necessarily an IT business case anymore. It's definitely more of a business oriented business case. Makes sense or am I dreaming it? Oh, it makes makes absolute sense. But again, I'm going to veer off here a little bit mm -hmm. on a counterpoint. And it's something you mentioned earlier in, in the, our podcast. Uh, and that's the importance of differentiation. Mm -hmm. And for a solution provider, uh, you, know, my, you know, a lot of times they can differentiate themselves pure size or, or balance sheet. But, but especially for the smaller ones, uh, I think it's crucial that they differentiate themselves by recommending the right technologies for the organizations, uh, which are going to then facilitate the business objectives. So, um, so it's really important for them to be able to differentiate whatever this technology is, whether it's cloud or on-prem or hybrid, and and then do the underlying value of it and, and how it's going to change the organization from an economic perspective, from cost savings, but then also to facilitate this digital transformation and other business objectives. Yeah, I don't think you can make the case just looking at like you said, the cost savings or maybe even the IT savings anymore, you've got to have that business impact in any cloud case that ties it back to the accelerating the transformation or making the transformation easier because of the application ecosystem, uh, making it more scalable, worldwide support. Those kind of elements I'm seeing is very important in these business cases. And again, more of the business metrics and the IT metrics, not just the IT metrics for cloud. Yeah, another really important element of all this that we haven't really discussed uh, is trust. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Hunter Mueller at HMG Strategy, he talks a lot about the importance of trust and in, in, in IT and business. And, you know, if somebody spends a lot of time on analysis, whether that's a solutions provider or manufacturer or somebody who works in IT or a research organization, whoever it is, if the... Uh, Decision makers don't trust the results, mm -hmm. then nothing else really matters. Uh, they're not going to go forward with it, at least not based upon the analysis. And, and in my book, I talk a lot about different ways to to build trust as an analyst, whatever role you're, that that implies. And um, 
I, I think though that, that of almost all the things in IT that I've seen, this this trust for the analyst is just absolutely imperative. I completely agree, Steve. And you know, in in IT sales for solution providers, the challenger sale has been kind of the way to to try to get customers to abandon the status quo and change. And I'm still a big fan of making sure that you're tying to an emotional factor to get them to change. But very quickly now, you have to pivot and you can't press too long on that emotion button because everyone is under amygdala overload. It's a very uncertain environment and there's already a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubt. And if you press too hard on that with Challenger, you can get them to freeze, right? So what does that mean? Trust has become the big factor. And do they trust you? Do they trust your organization? And then even more so, do they have trust in the decision itself that you're asking them to make? And I think that financial justification, the business case, can really go a long way, if you do it right, in building up that trust in the decision. Yeah, and, and you know some of the ways that um, organizations can build trust or by solution provider that, that analysts can build trust is by using the organization's own numbers. And, and like you mentioned, there's this big long spreadsheet that's impossible to wade through, uh, at least from the report perspective, have it very clear, very simple, mm -hmm. justified where you can track the numbers. I mean, when we do an analysis, when, when I do an analysis, my objective is always to be able to have my customer stand before the CFO or the board and tell them, look, these, these numbers are real, they're conservative, you know, there's no way we don't hit them. Mm -hmm. and so that, that's all part of, of building the trust. You know, another question that I get asked a lot is, what happens if the customer doesn't know their numbers, doesn't know their cost? And the, the challenge there is that if you try and wait till you can ascertain the cost of everything from a legacy environment standpoint, uh, the analysis will never happen, will never get complete. Agree. But what I started doing was adopting, uh, I actually learned this from P Professor Maholtra of Harvard, uh, pro perhaps the world's uh, top uh, negotiation expert. And uh, he's written some books and he, he recently had a, uh, a fiction book came out too, which is really good. Uh, but anyway, uh, so what we would do is use, I think you mentioned anchoring, is use this concept of anchoring. We'll say, well, you know, your legacy SAN, you're using it a lot, you're a pretty big user. We find that typically they go for between 600,000 and uh, a million. And, and based upon your usage, we think 900,000 would be a reasonable placeholder. Can we use that? Uh, and then we can always go back and change it later. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the way I always like to push through these unknowns. Funny yeah. thing is that sometimes people become really vested in those placeholders and they start really defending them. Uh, to other internal people. It's kind of, it's kind of a funny concept. <laughs> I know, but a lot of times we do find that they don't know the numbers, they don't know where to find them, and you don't want to have this be a endless data collection exercise where you never get there down to the decimal point of validity in the analysis. So having good, smart defaults that are research-based, I think, is key. Keeping it clear and simple and transparent is good. Uh, try not to have it be too complex, whether it be the presentation of the results or even the um, calculations themselves, and then their own numbers, where at least they validated every one of the assumptions that you're making, 
and also have put in their own numbers when they do know them is important. And I think the final one for trust is evidence where, you know, and Stephen, you mentioned this as a key part of the group where you do look back analysis, you know, being able to point to customers that have achieved those results uh, in similar industries, similar locations, similar roles to them, where you can hold up these heroes um, that you've analyzed I think that that goes a long way towards building that trust in the decision as well. Great, um, absolutely. A lot of times customers won't want to use their names uh, with an analysis they consider it all pretty confidential, but wherever possible to, to point to names and the success. And same thing internally, like I mentioned, uh, talking to sales people that have had great success in using it. And that kind of builds because a lot, a lot of salespeople are jaded by all these manufacturer ROIs out there that that at least appear to be biased toward their mm -hmm. solution. And, and so they're kind of jaded and seeing internally the success that other salespeople can have, whether that's at an end user or a solutions provider, then generates the trust that, wow, this, this, this really works. It's a valid process. It's not just out there to sell our solution. It's out there to help the customer make the best decision for her organization. Yeah, and Stephen, hopefully we are moving beyond those, you know, magical black box calculators that you see on so many websites. You know, you put in three numbers and out pops a 700% ROI and oh, magic, look, I, let me buy 10 of these today. Uh, just doesn't work that way. I think part of it is you need to have the transparency and build the trust. And then the second is, is that although you can certainly have a calculator on the web, you need to be able to drill into it, make sure it's transparent, show where the numbers came from, be able to have the, the buyer change any of the assumptions in there and even produce a negative result if they want. That's trust in their decision-making and their capability. Um, and then I think a big part of it with sellers is it's part of the journey of doing the analysis that could be sometimes as valuable as the ROI analysis that pops out the end. Talk about that a little bit and how you think it helps the seller in building that trusted advisor relationship. No, I think my own story, as I mentioned, uh, in my transition from channel partner to Nutanix really uh, exemplifies that, that through the analyses I did over the years, I had many clients that, that trusted me. And uh, even though they didn't know anything about, as they called it, Nutanix, <laughs> They figured if I joined that that it might be worth taking a look at, and and obviously I didn't buy it on site. You know, they said, "Hey, do an analysis for me." Um, and uh, in fact, the first one I did at Nutanix was for a company called Fairway Independent Mortgage Company, uh, and the CIO I had worked with at two different companies before that, uh, be before he joined. And um, back in those days, they were quite small. Today, they're last I heard one of the top three largest private mortgage companies in the United States. But doing this analysis for them of this, at the time, BTX is a very small, tiny company with new technology, but we showed them, well, you know, you can save all this money by moving to this technology. And they did, and now they run all their applications on hundreds of Nutanix nodes and uh, been extremely successful. So, yeah, I, I think that, like you said, the, going through the analysis process, you become much more of a consultant than a salesperson asking for PO, learning about the 
the pains and the environment and the aspirations of the customer and, and working with them. And a lot of times a bond forms in that whole process. I remember uh, the Fortune 1000 company I met, uh, I, I mentioned when I was, had my Citrix business, I would work with the CIO together in those days before Zoom, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night mm -hmm. uh, in San Francisco working on his analysis because he wanted to be, you know, really good. And so you can't almost help it, but form a bond when you go through that type of exercise. Absolutely. I've had a few of those workshops that have gone on for days and a couple at Microsoft that we did for clients, train McDonald's for weeks uh, to the point where I had enough McDonald hamburgers, I think, in two weeks <laughs> for, for a lifetime. But that's that's a different story. <laughs> so what is the one piece of advice the ROI dude would like to leave our Evolvers community with today, Stephen? I'll make it really brief. Uh, do the math and tell a story. <laughs> That's great. Do the math and tell a story. Steve, how can the Evolvers community find and reach you online? Uh, I'm on uh, LinkedIn, uh, on Twitter, at ROI Dude. Uh, uh, Accessflow.com, those are probably the best ways. Awesome. Reach out to Steven. I know that he uh, has a lot of advice and stories on the application of ROI and value. And uh, thank you again, Stephen, for joining us to make the Evolvers a great and growing community. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate the opportunity. Until next time, Evolvers keep evolving. <laughs>